Well, it's a real pleasure to see all of you this morning, uh, this evening. I'm still uh, in, in, in the morning time here, in this evening. So, especially those of you who have driven a ways to, uh, to visit with us. I've got a good friend, uh, Cheryl, here with us that uh, uh, grew up under my uh, preaching in uh, San Diego. And so she's back for some more pain and agony. And that's always good to, good to see, uh, see her. Uh, so nice that, uh, that you are here. You open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. <clears throat> the text we'll be dealing with this evening is, is chapter 4 and verses 7 through 11. Uh, let's, uh, let's stop, though, just for a second before we get into the text, just as a reminder that Peter starts this letter by saying to the elect exiles of the dispersion. He does not intend to mean that only these Christians who have been exiled from their home country are those who are exiles or God's elect exiles. Later in chapter 2, he makes that very clear in verse 11 when he says, Behold, beloved, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. I think you would agree with me that one of our challenges is to live as exiles in a country that has, for the most part, uh, been about as good to us as any country could be to anyone. When you read historically, we are definitely in a blip of time that uh, has been amazing for the last couple of hundred years to live with the kinds of freedoms that we have, to worship how we desire. And those things I, I, I have said even when I couldn't uh, even dream of things getting to where they are today. I thought, well, one day that will come to an end. It, historically, it just doesn't happen. But that puts all the more pressure on us when Satan has lulled us to sleep into thinking that we are not uh, really citizens of any other country except this country. But our citizenship, as Paul said in Philippians 3, is in heaven. And to live like that and to apply that is one of the greatest challenges that we have. And these words that Peter gives at the end of his letter, I think it is a stark reality, ought to be a stark reality, a stark notice to us of how we are to live differently than what we may have comfortably done. Nothing wrong with being comfortable. Nothing wrong with enjoying what God has blessed us with. But on the other hand, it is easy to allow those things to get, com- get us comfortable with for- and forget our mission and our duty and our job. Look at the words beginning in verse 7 of 1 Peter 4. He says, The end, reading ESV here, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keeping, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to, the, to serve one another as good stewards of the God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks of, uh, speaks of oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything 
God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It, it, is, uh, it is an interesting statement to read something that was written 2,000 years ago and you read the end of all things as, as at hand. Doesn't that kind of shock you? Because from our point of view, we're looking and saying, boy, 2,000 years didn't sound too much like at hand. And as a matter of fact... Uh, when we read Jesus bursting on the scene or John the Baptist, they said the kingdom of God is at hand. And that was only going to be about three years. The same words are used here. The end of all things are are at hand. I think it, it may be somewhat helpful to notice that in the net version, they translate the culmination of all things are at hand. I don't intend to spend a long time on this particular point because it's still going to apply to us. But let me suggest to you as Jewish listeners, as they were, I would suggest that what they're looking at is what they had been reading in the Old Testament prophets. For example, in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, Daniel was given this vision, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. I'm hitting the main parts of this. Desolations are decreed. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. Here is the prophecy and prediction of the Roman Empire conquering Israel, destroying Israel, making Jerusalem desolate, and the nation would be no more. At the end of uh, of Daniel, at chapter 12, verse 4, uh, the angel says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. You see those same words in Daniel 10, 14. The end was the idea of the end of the Jewish period. And I'm persuaded that that's really what what, uh, Peter is talking about here when he refers to this. However, you say, well, how are we going to look at that for us today? Let me suggest that this is an important picture here of them coming to the last stage of God's great redemptive plan. And and in in so doing, there's passages that mention this. Like, for example, if you went back to chapter 1 of 1 Peter, uh, chapter 1 and verse 20, speaking of Jesus, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So in those days, he's referring these is the last times. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 will talk about the examples of the Old Testament are written for us upon whom the end of the ages has come. So if you consider that they were living in the last stage of God's redemptive plan, how much more are we? So this, this would be the question I would start with. And, and this is foundational for this text. How much do you think about the return of Jesus as being any moment? It's hard. I admit, that's difficult, isn't it? I, I, I've lived uh, 74 years with tomorrow always coming. I've gotten used to that. I've got used to the thought that the next minute is still going to be here. I've got used to the thought that when I wake up in the morning, it's going to be there. 
One of those times, I won't be there, but I just got the, you just, you keep seeing the next day. You keep thinking that that's the way it's always going to be. And yet what Peter is doing here is he's calling upon us to live as those who would have the end in view. And that's the idea. And it's just as applicable today, if not more so, than it was then. Now, if you were to imagine, what would an apostle tell us What would Apostle want to get across to us that we need to do with the end in view? That it's near, that it's at hand, and this is very, very close. if 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 you didn't read anything else and you just sat down and say, well, just write down some things that you think would be important for you to do. I'm sure we would get a variety of things that we would put down. Here's what Peter puts down. Four admonitions. Four basic admonitions. I have to admit that when I read them, there's nothing glamorous about the admonitions. There's nothing terribly deep about the admonitions. They're they're simply laying there on the surface, inviting us to explore them and to make them a part of our lives. But these four admonitions Peter believed were critical if we were going to live with the end in view. That ought to be enough for us to say we need to pay really careful attention to this. And if nothing else, stick it on our refrigerator and say here's the things I must concentrate on with the end in view. The end is near. And I need to be ready for it. And here are four admonitions Peter wants these brethren to follow. So let's take a look at those as he begins in verse 7 by saying, Therefore, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Here is the, here is the first of the four admonitions. Be sober-minded. The word in, translated by other versions, the word is clear-minded. Be clear-minded. Well, you know, so well, what, what, what does that mean? Everything has to be out of the way to be clear-minded. Every, all the fuzziness, everything has to be cleared out of my mind so that I can focus on what God really wants me to do. I, I see these words by Jesus over here in Matthew chapter 6, and I think, I think they are very helpful to helping us understand this idea of clear-minded or sober-minded. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in your in, in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, he's not talking about the difference between being able to see clearly and being blind. He's talking about the difference between being able to see clearly and not having your glasses on and seeing things that you think you're seeing that really aren't there. When I did a lot of dirt bike riding, I didn't like to ride with my glasses on because they'd get fogged up. And I'd be flying down a trail at 40, 50 miles an hour that's about this wide. And I'd look up there and I'd go, is that a shadow or a boulder? Now, that makes a lot of difference. 
<laughs> and uh, I would say, I think I'll choose it's a shadow. <laughs> Usually I decided, I'm going to choose it's a boulder, and if it ends up to be a shadow, I'm better off if I miss it. But that you can see just, just the fact that it's distorted. That I'm not seeing something clearly, and that's what happens in life. We're not seeing things clearly. It's going to cause us to, to make poor decisions, to not prioritize as we should. So this is what he's talking about here. Possessions and sin have a tendency of distorting our views about what's going on in life. You know that. Ecclesiastes talks about that. Jesus warns about wealth over and over again. That's not us, fortunately, right? We're, we're, we're mostly just average poor people in America. I, I can never read this without going, we're the rich. We're the rich. We are so unusual in what we can eat and where we can live. Ladies and gentlemen, kings didn't live like we live. We can have grapes in January. They couldn't have grapes in January. We can have whatever we want. Anytime we want. We just go to the store and it's there. Homeless people on corners have cell phones. You, 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 we have no idea how well off we are. And Jesus said, it is so dangerous that it is more difficult for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He's using a hyperbole, but he's trying to make a point. We are in great danger of our soul because of simply what we have, because there's a tendency to focus more on what we see than on the citizenship of a kingdom we cannot see. And on the eternity that we do not yet have. It's very difficult. Faith, as the Hebrew writer said in chapter 11, 1, is the conviction of the things that are not seen. And that conviction is to be so strong that we are able to look past what the visible is and see the invisible and live for that invisible. Which means we put these other things... Beside, We put them behind us. They're there. They're a blessing. They're nice. We're thankful for them. But we must be extremely careful that these are not our focus. And the more we have and the more we own, the more the tendency is to try to work to protect it and to care about it and to make it nice and etc., etc. And there's nothing wrong in itself of those things. But boy, it can really grab our mind. And we have to be so careful about it. Consider also this word self-control. Read over that pretty easily. But self-control is the key to so much of the wrong that is going on in our world around us today. Self-control is something that has to be learned and taught from the time of, of infancy practically. By the time a child is six and seven months old at the very latest 
You can see the will of that child. You can see the the desire of that child to go its own way, to do what it wants to do as it wants to explore. It is the reason that the Proverbs say you train a child in the way he should go. That foolishness is, is bound up in the heart of a child. The reason those things are so is because we cannot sit back and think, well, I can just, you know, what would you, what would you like to do next? What would you like to do next? What would you like to do that? What would you like to do this? Be a parent. You know that every decision, every decision should be with maturity in view because self-control is the foundation for maturity. And without self-control, you will have lifelong damage. To your to what everything you do, it will be a mess. I mean, there were just there's small things that I remember my parents doing, like uh, you are not playing until you work. You work first, and then you play. And when I train preachers, I always say, I know tons of preachers take Monday off. Not dissing you if you take Monday off and a preacher, but for me. And my house, Monday is a work day because I don't want to be working Saturday. I want it done so that I, my mind can rest, work first. And that's true. Teresa tried to cheat one time. She says, just take this Monday off and work Friday, please. Just, just, just this time we can go do this and this and you can work Friday. Okay, 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 I'll do it. Halfway through the day she says, you're not here, are you? I said, no. <laughs> I will never be here until my work is done. I have to work first. All kinds of things that you grow up with stick with you that are valuable and you may complain about it as a child, but they're extremely important. I don't want to do this as a child, but I'm talking about how important this self-control is. Self-control is the ability to say no to self. And you have to train that into a child. And we have to follow that as adults. It's the ability to say no to yourself. And there is no maturity without being able to do that. It's the ability to prioritize responsibilities of life. To know first and foremost that the love of God has to be the number one thing in my life. And then after that, the love of my spouse. And after that, the love of my children. And fourth on the list is providing and the work that I do. And you get any of those messed up, you put them ahead of the other, and you're an idolater. It's simple as that. You're an idolater. And we do it all the time. It gets all mixed up and everything falls apart. It's the ability to accept responsibilities and complete a task at hand. Not halfway. Complete the task. Get the things done. Any of you who are employers, and you talk to any employer, say... How's it going for you hiring uh, people? How's that going for you? Just they, they start gritting their teeth when they think about it. I can't find anybody who will complete a day's work half the time or be here when they're supposed to be here. They just get furious. It's a lack of self-control. It's a lack of maturity. And it's coming from people who are old. In God's people. We need to be a people that are self-controlled. It is going to be one of the primary keys of how we look to the end times. And then notice those little words, for the sake of your prayers. I don't think he's saying, for the sake of God answering your prayer. I think he's saying, because you can't pray right. 
If you if you are not clear-minded, possessions out of the way, things of this world out of the way, cares of this life out of the way, if you're not those things, if you're not self-controlled, you're just going to pray a prayer about gimme, 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 gimme. You're not going to be in 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 uh, in sync with God's desires. Hallowed be your name. May your name be held high and holy. Your kingdom be number one in my life and come to the people of the world and your will be done. That will not be the beginning of my prayers if I'm just thinking about the things that I want to do. Second admonition. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now you see those words. I'd like to just really emphasize that statement and some versions translated this above all else above everything else isn't that interesting now wait a minute above everything else I want you to love one another and I want you to love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins all right, now that's one thing we don't need to talk long about because we as brethren know that over the, cost of, over the course of time in this country, especially the last 50, 70 years, we have just done marvelously on loving, loving one another. Never divided, never, never got mad at each other and ran down the road, never got upset, if you don't do it my way, I'm taking the highway. We never did any of those things like that. That's never happened. It's happened so much that it's absolutely throw up disgusting. You go into cities now where north side won't talk to east side and south side won't. It's, it's just like if four, if four Christians got, got stranded on an island, you'd have four churches in no time. It, it craziness. And the Lord has told us. First John chapter 4, verse 20, don't you dare say you love God. Whom you have not seen, if you do not love your brother whom you've seen. Well, you, I love my brothers as long as they're good to me and agree with me, and I don't have any little falling out with them, and this doesn't happen, and that doesn't happen, and things go my way. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, right, right. I, I, I understand. Look, that doesn't happen. There's going to be some irritants. There's going to be some tough times. What do you do in a marriage when there's tough times? What are we told to do? We'll work through it. And you get to the other side and you're better and you're stronger. What should we be doing as brethren? As those who are the body of Christ. Who are those who are arms and legs and fingers in the body of Christ. We just rip it off and throw it away? No. We work on that. We have to be patient and loving. You don't throw your kid out the window when when you get to have a disagreement with them. My, my dear wife twice texted one of our sons because she was mad at him. Didn't text him. Actually, meant to text me and texted him and told him all about what she thought she was telling me. It was great. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't have to. I didn't have to whack on him. Well, your mother was right. What are you guys are talking about me? Duh. When you act like a ding dong, we're going to talk about you and try to get you right. That's just the way it is. Above all else. And then you see these words earnestly, loving with an intent that is steadfastly pursued. You're pursuing it. It's just not automatic. It's not just feel good. You know, Peter earlier in the letter said, I want unfeigned love. None of this business of seeing you. 
hi, how are you? You're thinking in your mind, what a ding-dong, you know. No. Unfeigned love. So important. Love from the depth of your heart. That's the kind of love God is asking for. Keep loving. You notice those words too? He's just all these words in this little sin. Keep loving one another. You're never going to give up. You're never going to stop. You keep loving one another. Oh, just vital. Jesus told us in John. John chapter 14. Here's how. Here's how people are going to know. Here's how they're going to know that you're my disciples. Because you love one another. That's how they're going to know. And, and what, what, have we, what message have we sent? We have not sent that message. It's a shame on us. And we're going to be in trouble in the day of judgment. We don't do better at this. That's just all there is to it. So here's the second main admonition that we need to follow. Look at these final words. It's a quotation from Proverbs 10 and verse uh, 12. Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over, covers over all wrongs. Now, the two key words there are stirs up and covers. You know what love does? Love when an in, I mean, as hatred does, hatred when there is a problem, when somebody does something wrong, when there's something happening like that, what hatred does is grab that event and just put a, put a mixer to it and stir it up and pass it around and talk about it and go about how what, how, you know what he did. That's what hatred does. Love takes the event. says, it's just an event. And lets it go. I like what J.D. White said about this. He said, when a private personal injury has been done to it, to him, as though nothing had occurred, or the, excuse me, uh, let me start again. That person acts out of love when a private personal injury has been done to him as though nothing had occurred. In this way, by simply ignoring the unkind act, or the insulting word, he brings the evil thing to an end and it dies and leaves no seed. The consideration gives dignity and worth and inestimable to the uh, worth and estimable to the feeble efforts of the most insignificant of us to make love the controlling principle in our lives. Preacher in Ecclesiastes says, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that you many times have yourself cursed others. Isn't that a good one? Man, you know what I found out they said about me? Well, what have you said about others? Ease up. Off the cuff, probably. Not a big deal. Let it go. Love one another earnestly. That is the key. The fourth, I mean third, admonition here. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That a surprising one? That's a surprising one. Here's the, here's the four great admonitions in the end of time with the end in view. And one of them is show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The first thing I want you to notice here is that most other places where you read about hospitality, like Hebrews 13, it might be it's like show hospitality to strangers. Or you're like as shepherds, elders, you're qualified, you're going to be hospitable. And, and it, it's, it's more, it seems to be that kind of idea. In this particular case, it show hospitality to one another. You notice the one another statements in this text? Verse 8, 
loving one another, verse 9, hospitality to one another, verse 10, serve one another. It's one. This is within the body. Show hospitality to one another. Huh. Uh, not limited, by the way. Not limited to just a few. He's talking to all the brethren here. He wants you to show hospitality to other people. <clears throat> this is a, a command then to the whole church. Now, let's ask the question, why is hospitality command? Why, why is this so important to Peter? I'll give you three, three main reasons here. First, we grow in love over dinner. We just do dinner well. <laughs> we just do eating together well. And do you notice in the Scriptures what Jesus always did? He wanted to go to somebody's house to dinner. He wanted to sit down at table. When you think about that next life that we're looking forward to, the Lord refers to it as a great supper, as a wedding feast. It's always pictured that because around the table is where love grows. In the family, among brothers and sisters, that's where love grows. It's an important time to, uh, to help the weak, to help the one who's stumbling, to help the person in the church who needs connections. Do you know, Brent will tell you this, whoever this guy is will tell you, Phil will tell you this, <laughs> that in doing evangelism, the most important thing we look for in the members in helping and supporting that work is the people we're teaching getting connected with all of them. When that happens, the job of the teacher becomes a breath of fresh air. It is so much easier when that happens. It just works. It's amazing how different that can be. If these people that we're teaching. They have to disconnect from bad influences in the world. If they do not have someone to fill that void, they're going to die. That void has to be filled. Show hospitality in order to produce that kind of love. It's providing for brethren who are traveling. It's not making them spend $200 in a hotel. It's providing for brethren who are traveling. It's extending hospitality to those people who have need during trials. Growing up with my mother, my earliest memories, somebody's always staying in our house who had need for a short period of time. And to the day she died practically, someone was always staying in her house who had need. I'd have to call mom up at times and go, if I came and visited you, would there be a place for me to sleep? And more often than not, she'd say, mm, we can throw something out in the living room. And I slept in the living room many times. While strangers to me, but people she was helping, would stay in the bedrooms. My grandmother and grandfather in their retirement years lived first in an eight-wide mobile home. Then they got up to a ten-wide. And I think at the very last they got a twelve-wide. Do you know who was more hospitable than anybody in that church? Grandma and grandpa. At every gospel meeting when it was over, every one of you here who, had been, who were visiting, you would be invited to the ten-wide or whatever mobile home. 
And she'd dig up whatever she could out of the fridge and everything else. Maybe had a few cookies here and there and pass them out and make some coffee and stuff and have everybody in her little 12. You know what people say today? Oh, you know, I just live in a little place. Whatever. Are you kidding me? Whatever. We think we're looking for coming into a, you know, mansion? You know where I'm most uncomfortable? Fancy homes. (laughs) You walk in and everything's so clean. You want to, you know, put some, put some, uh, you know, clothes out of the dryer on the couch or something. Make me feel comfortable. I mean, let's, we need to relax. Now, my mother didn't relax. We, if we were going to have people over, she said, first thing we're going to do is clean the garage. I said, what? They're not going to clean the garage. <laughs> but you see how, I mean, this is one of four things that you do. When you are looking to the end. That's amazing, isn't it? That's so important. And I tell you, as those who are being evangelistic know, your actions in that change the world. It just changes the world. I cannot stress it enough. Finally, well, before that, he said do it without grumbling. You notice that? That's a cool one, man. That's a cool one. Grumble about what? Well, I say like grumble about preparation. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, grumble about the expense. Uh-huh. Uh, grumble about the inconvenience to your schedule. Uh-huh. And grumble about wear and tear on the house. Oh. And then grumble that God gave me this house and I got to use it. How about that one? Watch out. God did you give you a gift and you're to be a good steward of that gift. Final admonition. Each of us have received a gift. You have a one another gift. It's a gift you use for one another. It's gifts for the outside too, but it's a gift you use for one another and God expects you to use the gift as each has received a gift. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards. A steward is a caretaker for someone else's goods. Like in the parable of the talents. You have a gift. You cannot bury it. You cannot pretend you don't have it. You have a gift. You must use the gift. God gave you a beautiful gift. Please, please God. And use the gift. Might be a gift of speaking. Speak as the oracles of God. I just thought we could say, but I'll give you one thing here. When you read your Bible... Read it as if every single paragraph you have to stop and explain it to somebody else. Don't just read it and go, oh, that's interesting. No, 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 no. No fair, no fair, no fair, no fair. You read something and you turn around and you verbalize it out loud. Say it to your dog, say it to your wife, husband, your friend, your neighbor, whatever. Say it out loud. 
I've urged people, and they've done it. I, take, you take a text and ask your neighbor if you can just tell them what this text says and see if they, it makes sense to them. Great way to start a class with Say, I'm trying to practice something to tell what's in the Bible. Would you, would you be my, my, my practice person, you know, and you tell me if I'm making sense? I, they'll, they'll, they'll say, oh, sure, I'd be glad to do that. Great, fantastic. I get to teach this person. You know, they, 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 it's, just, it's, it's beautiful. It's a great thing. And a gift of serving with the strength God supplies, not the strength that's left over. Take the strength that God has given you, the goal at the end in order that everything God may be glorified. What do you want to do with the end in view? You want to make everything so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's our job. That is why we're here. The culmination of all things at hand. Live as if the end is in view. Thank you. All right, take a ten-minute break. <laughs>